Hollow Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's innovative hidden screen folds away when closed, keeping it clean while bringing in a ton more sun. Choose 0% financing for 72 months or a free upgrade to the hidden screen on our 250 series. Visit PellaWI.com today. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us, um, as we've been talking about all morning. Today is, of course, the, the formal recognized day. It's the holiday for Juneteenth Day, so the stock market is not open banks are closed there is no mail so if you're expecting something in the mail you're gonna have to wait till tomorrow as i think this is what the second year that that it's been a full-time federal holiday around here it's a holiday as well so well there it i would say it's it is not completely empty around this building but it is largely empty around the building but that's okay we have a regular show. It's also very good to get behind the microphone. Hope you had a great Father's Day weekend. One of the things that I, I always say to people, say, oh, there's really nothing to do. If you can't find stuff to do in southeastern Wisconsin on a glorious June weekend, you're you're just not trying hard enough. And I'm always glad to get to work on Mondays because between graduation parties, and we had a great graduation party for my wife's granddaughter, Gracie, and between trying to deal with my golf fix and just enjoying the weather and stuff. I'm just exhausted by the time Monday rolls around. So it's good to get back to work for that. Uh, Summerfest, quick reminder, starts this week. Summerfest this year in contrast to different years Summerfest is going to be over three weekends it's not remember it used to always start on a thursday and then they take monday off and it would run through the following sunday no more for anybody who hasn't been paying attention Summerfest is thursday friday and saturday this week next week and the week after that so it's nine days if you look at the entertainment it's just absolutely tremendous and if you happen to be down there during the day um, on weekdays my program with the exception of this thursday because there's a brewers baseball game uh, my program originates from the lakefront so um, monday if you're down there again any of the weekdays we will be down there so be sure and stop off and say hello all right let us get right to it you will remember two years ago in the wake of the, the George Floyd incident, we, we sort of had a, a summer of protests. And that was certainly true in Milwaukee where you had a, a number of social justice protests, by and large peaceful, but in some respects not. And in Milwaukee, one of the things and one of the tactics that the police use to try to control crowds, especially when crowds are starting to get out of control, is they use tear gas. And you may recall that at the time, the police chief in Milwaukee was Alfonso Morales, and they were faced with a couple of these large protests that were going on, people refusing to obey police orders and things like that, marching down the freeway. And on five or six occasions, the Milwaukee police deployed tear gas as a way of dispersing crowds. This is not an uncommon crowd control measure. The Fire and Police Commission at the time, and I think pretty much there's been almost a complete turnover on the Fire and Police Commission, but the Fire and Police Commission at the time took it upon themselves to demote Uh, Chief Morales, who in my opinion remains one of the best Milwaukee police chiefs ever, in part because of his use of tear gas 
on multiple occasions to try to have crowd control. And that brought this lengthy discussion about, you know, should the Milwaukee police be allowed to use tear gas, um, under what circumstances, and that was actually one of the reasons that I understand we did not have the Democratic National Convention here in the summer of 2020 because of COVID, but one of the factors that caused a lot of area police departments to say that they were not going to provide assistance, that they were gonna, weren't were going to come and help out, was the Fire and Police Commission had pretty much said, we don't want you using tear gas to control crowds, which was... Well, a policy that I think would have led to all sorts of problems. In any event, the whole tear gas issue has kind of subsided, except it is back in the news. The People's Republic of Madison, for the second time in two years, the Madison City Council is going to consider banning police from using tear gas, mace, or devices that fire less lethal projectiles like bean bags or sponge tipped rounds to control unruly crowds. You know, in some circumstances, they, they use these bean bag things that leave like a bruise and as opposed to having to shoot into crowds or things like that. All crowd control measures. Here's the story as it appears in the Madison paper. Alder woman Juliana Bennett, who represents the campus area 8th district, is proposing an ordinance tomorrow which will ban Madison police and law enforcement responding under mutual aid. So this means if you get a call, hey, we've got a riot going on, you know, we need people to come in from other areas, surrounding areas, those law enforcement officers would not be able to do this either. It would prevent Madison police and law enforcement responding under mutual aid from using chemical agents, that means tear gas, or impact projectile devices that have the potential to indiscriminately hit more people than the intended target. Yes, when you throw tear gas into a crowd, you are going to you know, impact a number of the people. Uh, let's see. The older woman says, it is of the utmost importance to prohibit the use of indiscriminate weapons that can have a long-term impact on our people. Chemical munitions, this would be tear gas, negatively impact everyone in the area, whether old or young, able or disabled, instigator or innocent. Rather, MPD should employ different, more effective methods of crowd control other than chemical munitions. Okay, what are those methods? Excuse us, all you folks with the bricks and the Molotov cocktails that are getting ready to throw these things, well, we'd, we'd ask you to disperse and go home and, and, and don't throw that brick. Our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm sorry, but if this idea were any more dumb, at least in my opinion, it would oink. And that is with apologies to, uh, to swine. You, you need, police need to, be able to control crowds. And when crowds refuse to disperse, you need to have non-lethal methods of causing them to disperse. Tear gas is one of those methods. Bean bags are another one of those methods because if you don't let the police have the option of the non-lethal force, what happens is these situations quickly escalate, and then you're faced with a situation where you really get put into a position where you have to use lethal force because you've got the guy with a potential firebomb who's getting ready to throw it, and you know, you're know you the police officer in the way, and then if, if 
once it gets to that stage, once it gets that out of control, you're really forcing the hands of the police officers. Now, I'm not a proponent of indiscriminate use of tear gas, but this idea that you would ban the cops from being able to use something like tear gas to help disperse crowds who are refusing to disperse I think would be short-sighted at best and really actually dangerous. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should we tie the hands of police officers and say, all right, for crowd control, you cannot use tear gas, you cannot use non-lethal methods like beanbags. We want you to try to reason with the crowd, essentially. And if that doesn't work, well, I don't know, get out of the way and let them burn down the city. 855-616-1620. What do you think? I do not want to make your head explode on a on a nice Monday afternoon, but in Madison, they are going to be seriously considering a resolution that's going to be introduced tomorrow, which would ban police from using non-lethal methods of crowd control involving chemical stuff, in other words, tear gas or beanbag projectiles or things of the like. The One of the proponents, and actually the, the mayor, who hasn't signed off on this, but the mayor says, we're committed to keeping our community as safe as possible. When it comes to conflicts, our goal is to resolve them as peacefully as possible using communication, crisis intervention, and other de-escalation tactics. Okay, that, that's all. That, that's all well and good, but you, you've got you've got a mob, and the police have said, okay, this is an unlawful assembly. We need you to disperse. The mob refuses to disperse. You then have members of the mob that start breaking windows or destroying statues, or if it's Kenosha, throwing firebombs, etc. So what are you supposed to do? Excuse us, mob. Pardon the, pardon us, but we told you you need to disperse. Now, the Madison police chief says, look, we, we agree. We, we don't need to be throwing tear gas in all the time, but we need to have these non-lethal methods available to us. Because what's going to happen if you don't let us use tear gas, if you don't let us use beanbags, what's going to happen is you make it much more likely that our officers are going to find themselves in a situation where they need to use lethal force. Again, the the, the classic example is you've got the person with the, the Molotov cocktail, the firebomb, and they're, they're getting ready to throw it. Well, all right, at that point in time, the police officer has to, to stop them. Or you've got a situation where you have... I don't know that the common thing was people would would take like frozen cans of soda and things like that. That's the latest thing so that they're really hard and they throw them at the police. So, all right, you've got a mob where you have a bunch of people who are counting on the anonymity of being part of the mob who are throwing the cans of soda at the police and things like that. Well, what, what are you supposed to do? Either let the cops get hit by these cans of soda and injured or go into the crowd and then have to start physically wrestling with the people that are throwing them? Or do you give the authorities the ability to try to disperse the crowd before it gets that out of control? And I guess to me, this this is a complete and total, you know, no-brainer. And why would you take this away from the cops? But yet I understand this is the politically correct uh, idea. And again, remember, this is the principal issue 
that got Al Morales demoted by the then Fire and Police Commission because you had a number of the quote-unquote social justice protests that had gotten out of hand in one shape or form or another, and Al Morales authorized the use of tear gas on five or six different occasions to help disperse the crowd. But now, in Madison at least, they're saying, well, we just don't, we think we need to do these humane things. Let's review the stuff. 855-616-1620. Jeff, interesting how this comes a few weeks um, after we can potent, before how we can potentially hear Roe versus Wade overturned and what that would cause this. Um, Jeff, I guess you just arm the officers with cameras and record all the rioters and then send them the bill for all the things they destroy, as long as it's communicated that that's what's going to happen. Well, I, I, I think if you ask the people of Kenosha whether they, they just wanted, during the Kenosha riots from two years ago, whether you wanted law enforcement to stand down and let them burn segments of the city, I think most people would say, no, this is not a very good idea for this whole situation. Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, it sounds like there's some organized trouble coming down the pipe, and maybe politicians want to ensure that the troublemakers will not be impeded by police. Well, I, I hope that's not the case. One of our texters says, Jeff, I can't believe this is even a discussion. Yeah, I... <laughs> I, I can't believe it is either because it is so incredibly short-sighted if you do not allow the police to have some degrees of, of crowd control when the crowd is starting to get out of hand, you pretty much guarantee that things are going to escalate to a level that none of us want to do. Jeff, if you're asking for help, you obviously need assistance. Now you want to limit that assistance. Um, hopefully, uh, you will get some apartment taking you up, department taking you up on that. Madison, good luck. Right, because this rule, that's the other thing. And that was an issue in Milwaukee. And it would have been an issue in 2020 because... The Fire and Police Commission at the time was intent on saying no tear gas. And you had a lot of agencies that would have otherwise come in and helped the Milwaukee police if there had been a DNC. They didn't want to put their officers in this sort of position because I think most reasonable people understand that this is taking the ability to control the crowd away from the police with the ability to use tear gas is just an idea that is going to result in making matters worse. So, you know, we'll see where this all goes and, you know, we'll, we'll, figure out whether Madison is serious about this, but this is the the wokeness, this is the political correctness, this is the idea of, well, let's be touchy-feely and let's be kumbaya, and I get it. I mean, I understand the whole concept of, you know, when you you, you want to allow people peaceful protest, that's fine. Well, you're not going to throw tear gas into peaceful protests, but if you start to see stuff getting out of control, if you see people walking down the freeway, for example, and you ask them nicely to disperse and they refuse to do it, and then you ask them a little more firmly not to disperse, and they're still walking the wrong way down the freeway, and then you've got a couple people that start throwing bricks or throwing cans of soda that are frozen or whatever. At this point in time, you've got two choices. You can either let the mob rule, or you can say, hey, we were serious when we told you that you've got to conform to the law, and you know, if you're not going to disperse, we're going to force you to disperse. All right, back with more in just a minute. We'll see what Madison does. So, very glad to have you with us. If we're not 
at 100 homicides in the city of Milwaukee. We're, we're awfully close. The most recent numbers I have from the Milwaukee Police Department and their, their current crime numbers, it was 96, but I do not think that reflects the yet continuing violence of the weekend. If you haven't been keeping track, between Friday and Sunday, you had 14 Milwaukee shootings. City of Milwaukee shootings, 14, leaving three dead and 15 injured. And some of these were younger people. Some of these were older people. So, again, it it was 96 um, my guess is we're probably at 100 now, and, and it's, it's just it's a round number that you hate to hit. This time last year, there were about 77. So the, the, for everybody out there that is preaching nonviolence and we need to get along better and we need to work things out and we need to you know make people stop carrying guns and using those guns, that message right now is not getting through. And this last weekend was another example of it. And it is interesting because if you look at the homicides in Milwaukee County, almost all of the homicides, not quite, but almost all of them, not all, but almost all, are in the city of Milwaukee, which is where the violence seems to be concentrated, which is, again, one of these areas where we just have to recognize that while violence intervention and all that stuff is is great, what we need to realize is that there's a bunch of people, including many folks who are not legally allowed to carry firearms, who are carrying firearms and are willing to use them, and other people who have the impulse control of a fruit fly that are carrying firearms and are willing to use them. And the bottom line is most of those people have been in trouble with the law before, so what 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 are we missing here when those people who get in trouble and commit crimes with guns are caught what we need to do is we need to have consequences and yes that means that people are going to go to jail and yes it means that people are going to go to prison perhaps for a long time but you need to do that to get those people who are inclined to shoot other people off the street it's pretty self-evident and it's not going to get better until we start doing that Yeah, the, the the latest count is five homicides over the weekend in Milwaukee. And so I, I think what that's going to do is when they update the homicide numbers, it, we're, we're going to be over 100. And it's just we're not even through June yet. I mean, at this pace, you're going to see over 200 homicides in the city of Milwaukee. And it's just it's just it's just mind blowing. It, it, it is that things have gotten could have gotten this bad this this fast. And I, I appreciate all the conversations about, hey, we need to do more with anger management. And I, I respect that. You need to do more with this idea of why is it that's what, what conditions are causing people to walk around armed. But at, at the same time, you got to recognize a, a lot of this stuff that's going on is just people who have no impulse control and you get into an argument. And maybe 15 years ago, you, you get into an argument and somebody would take a swing at somebody else. And worst case scenario, you, you end up in the emergency room. You need stitches. Now you end up in the morgue because people are carrying guns and they're willing to shoot each other and they don't care if they hit the person they're aiming at or they don't care if they hit other people and it really just is an, an out of control situation and it's it's bad in a lot of urban areas but you know if you look at it per capita M- Milwaukee 
Um, Milwaukee is right up there per capita when you look at an unacceptable level of violence. And I think, you know, that's got to be the real challenge moving forward to the elected officials. And, you know, if you want to talk about new laws and things like that, I'm, I'm all in favor of it. And for everybody that talks about, well, we want this gun control thing or that gun control thing, that's fine. But the starting point has to be, okay, how is that particular measure going to make the streets safer today? What's that going to do to stop the 19-year-old gangbanger who's walking around armed to the teeth? Um, what, what are we going to do to get that person to not shoot indiscriminately into crowds or not shoot somebody when they get into an argument with them? And I guess my, my answer is, at least short term, we got to recognize that we got to start getting people off the streets, pure and simple. Okay, for... The last couple months, as gas prices have been skyrocketing in Wisconsin, I have been offering two what I think are common sense solutions to at least help us during this, what you hope is a transitory period of of high prices. First thing I suggested and have pushed is I think we should have a gas tax moratorium in Wisconsin. There's two, essentially there's two separate gas taxes, but they total about 33 cents a gallon. If the governor were to call a special session of the legislature for the purpose of a gas tax moratorium, let's let's say through Labor Day or something like that, and then use a lot of the COVID relief money that we have sitting around to continue the road projects. I think that that would be something that would be very positive. But the, the governor's not willing to do that. If he calls the special session to have a moratorium on the state sales tax, okay, then the burden shifts to the legislature, and then we can put some pressure on them. But this starts with Tony Evers, and he's unwilling to do that. The second thing that we could do right away is repeal the minimum markup law in the state of Wisconsin. The minimum markup law says that you have to, if you're a gasoline, and this goes back to the Depression. We've talked about this before. If you are a gasoline retailer, you have to... On the retail level, you have to mark the gas up at least 9%, um, actually 9.15 or something like that. This has never made any real-world sense to me. If you were to repeal the minimum markup law and allow the free market to operate, you would probably be able to buy gas for about $0.40 a gallon less. So repeal the minimum markup law. That saves you $0.35, $0.40 a gallon. Put a moratorium on the state gas taxes. And and you're talking about, I don't know, $0.75 a gallon, which is real money at a time that people are hurting. Now, the governor has been unwilling to do that. All right. The governor has, however, a couple months ago, and I saw an ad touting this, while he's unwilling to do anything with the state gas tax, he did show up at a press conference a month or two ago and say he thinks that the federal government should consider pausing the federal gasoline tax, which is about 18 cents a gallon. Now, I always thought it was the height of hypocrisy and irony that Tony Evers has the the gall to come out and say, well, I think the federal gas tax should be suspended while not pushing to suspend the Wisconsin sales tax, which is almost twice as much. But let's let's leave that little irony aside. But Evers and a couple Democratic governors were calling on Biden to suspend the federal gas tax, at least for a, a short period of time. Well, 
I don't know. That is now under consideration. On Friday, Treasury Secretary Janin, Janet Yellen um, said gas prices have ridden, risen. She was on um, this week over the weekend, ABC show. And so she says gas prices have ridden, risen a great deal and it's clearly burdening households. Let, let me let that linger out there. This is the Treasury Secretary on Sunday who says gas prices have risen a great deal and it's clearly burdening households, to which my response would be, no kidding. Did did this light just go off? I mean, a year ago, gas was two dollars and fifty cents a gallon. Now it's, you know, over five dollars or almost five dollars a gallon wherever you are. Yes. Yes. Ms. Treasury Secretary, yes, Mr. President, gas prices have gone through the roof, and and yes, they are clearly burdening households. So her response is, this is an idea that would be suspending the federal gas tax. This is an idea that is certainly something worth considering. Now, interestingly, several states have already done what Wisconsin has been unwilling to do thus far. States like Connecticut and Maryland, you know, they've all come in and they've said that, okay, we're going to have a state sales tax moratorium. But so far, Congress has done nothing. Biden and the Treasury Secretary are now apparently saying, okay, this is an idea worth considering. The federal gas tax is 18.4 cents. So you, you wouldn't you get a lot more relief if in Wisconsin we suspended the state gas tax for a couple months, but 18 cents is 18 cents. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We have been throwing money around right and left over the course of the last two and a half years. All right, what about something that might really make a difference for consumers, particularly those consumers who are the most strapped at the pump. I understand 18 cents. Well, all right. You, you might say, well, what's 18 cents when we're already paying five dollars and nine cents a gallon for gasoline? But 18 cents is 18 cents. 855-616-1620. What do you think about a federal gas tax moratorium? Let's say for for the summer. 855-616-1620. I have two words. Good idea. We discuss next. And by the way, I understand that a, a moratorium on either the federal gas tax of 18 cents that Biden says he's now finally considering or a moratorium on the state sales tax on gasoline of 33 cents a gallon or so. I, I understand that you can say, hey, it's 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 a stunt. It's a political stunt. It's designed to buy votes because, in in any sense, it's going to expire shortly before the midterms or maybe immediately after that. I I understand all that. But you know what? Sometimes I don't care because, you know, people who are driving right now are hurting. They're hurting in a big way. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why gas prices are through the roof. Part of it is because of Putin. There's no question about that in the war in Ukraine. Part of it is inflation in general. And a lot of it is because Joe Biden declared war on oil companies about a year and a half ago. He's made it very clear that he wants to put them out of business. But we're not ready to shift to the electric cars now. So this is an inevitable um, response to, I think, a lot of stuff that the Biden administration has done, and now they're, they're finding that it's bad. But okay, so it's a political stunt. So it's designed to buy votes. I don't care. It's it's at least some relief. So 18 cents on the federal level, and then 
Maybe Tony Evers calls a special session of the legislature <laughs> like he's going to do that. But, you know, that's another 33 cents. Now you're talking 50-some cents. Like I say, you add in a repeal of the minimum markup law, you're talking about almost a dollar a gallon in savings that people could have. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? I agree with you 100%. I mean, no matter what it is, it helps. And I don't care either if it's a political stunt. I mean, I pull up most of the time in Wisconsin, so anything that helps, helps. I mean, we have a problem governor in Illinois who doesn't want to, you know, repeal the state tax for a while on gasoline like yours. So, I mean, if they did it at the federal level, kudos. You know, if they could right. do anything else, great. I'll take it. I don't care what it is. Right, exactly. I mean, th- thanks for calling. And, and, and just... And I'm not talking about a permanent suspension. I understand we have to pay for road construction. I, I get all that. But here in Wisconsin, for example, we we are flush still with this COVID relief money. Use that to to pick up the tab for a couple months. Federal system, we, we've still we've, we've got all this COVID relief funds that have been appropriated and is floating around. Why not? Now, some of our, you know, t- one of our texters says, "Well, I mean, I, you know, what can the governor do this? Can can you know what what's the problem? Can he do this? Well, why why doesn't the legislature act? Well, here's the problem: the legislature is out of session. Now, that's a whole other story. But the legislature is out of session until next year, until after it. The only way the legislature could act would be for Tony Evers to call a special session of the legislature. Tony Evers could come out tomorrow and say, you know what, I recognize that people are hurting, and I am calling a special session of the legislature with for the purpose of suspending or putting a moratorium on the Wisconsin gas tax and also repealing the um, repealing the minimum markup law. Evers could do that today. Then the Republicans who control the legislature have to decide where they're going to be, but they really can't do anything unilaterally. So that's the answer to the texters saying, where's the Republicans? They could next year, but right that next year doesn't help. You, you need relief right now, and that's got to start from, from the governor. And I will... I'll say this in advance. If the governor were to come out this afternoon or tomorrow morning and say, I'm calling a special session of the legislature to do those two things that that guy on the radio in Milwaukee was talking about, because we need to get relief for the hardworking people of the state of Wisconsin, I will be the first to use whatever bully pulpit I have in a highly rated new time radio show to encourage the Republicans in the legislature to do what I would describe is the right thing. But right now, there's nothing that can be done. It all starts with the governor. So that's that's the best answer I can have. I don't think the governor has the power to just unilaterally suspend the gas tax. But he does have the power to bring the legislature back into session and then you know, force their hands. But it, it starts with Tony Evers. And so Evers is talking about, well, let's suspend the federal tax, 855-616-1620. And by the way, I don't, I don't have any problems with, with suspending the, you know, gas tax. I mean, I, I don't for a period of time. I don't think you, there's a need or a desire to do this, you know, forever. But let, let's get us through the summer driving season. I mean, wouldn't that be nice if all of a sudden, and again, eight, I understand the federal gas tax is 18 cents. Um, it's 18 cents, but it's not, it's not uh, enough to, uh, but I would argue that that's enough 
to make a, a difference. And 18 cents here, 33 cents there, it all adds up. So, you know, Joe Biden says he is considering a moratorium on the federal gas tax. Republicans, I understand there's some resistance because they say, oh, this is just an election year stunt. And it is a little bit of a stunt. I appreciate that. And I also appreciate the fact that Joe Biden has contributed to the high gas prices that we have. But you know what? That, that That's okay. It's a stunt that would help people. So I'm in favor of it. Now, one of our texters is saying, well, wait, wait, you, Jeff, you're talking about calling a special session of the legislature. Did, didn't Tony Evers call a special session of the legislature? Well, here's how it works in Wisconsin. The governor has the ability to call a special session of the legislature, but it has to be for a, a specific purpose. It's not like, hey, I'm bringing the legislature back in session to consider anything they want to do. It has to be for a defined purpose. And as I recall, the upcoming special session is, and it's not going to go anywhere, but it was called for the purpose of repealing the, the state's ban on abortion in the event that Roe versus Wade would would be overturned. So that's, that's, that's it. So you couldn't say, okay, we've got this special session that's coming up, and here what we're going to do is we're going to also we're going to use this as an opportunity to consider like a gas tax moratorium. That's not how it works. The, to start the ball rolling, Tony Evers would have to say, I am calling the legislature into a special session for the purpose of a 90-day moratorium on the Wisconsin sales tax. I am calling the special the legislature into a special session for the purpose of repealing the minimum markup law. Then then we we have the debate on on the merits but just because he's trying to he's calling a special session for repealing the abortion law which is going to go nowhere at this point in time that that doesn't mean that they can cons- consider any all sorts of other things so that's that's kind of how it works and so if you're saying well wait jeff you're you're talking about special sessions we're going to have one it, it has to be for that specific purpose which is why at least as far as the things I am talking about, the ball is in the governor's court. Now, on the federal level, does the president have the authority to just unilaterally wave a magic wand and repeal or at least put a moratorium on the federal gas tax? I don't know. I, I'm not positive. I, I'm one of these people who have watched over the years, and it's gotten worse with President Obama and then President Trump and now President Biden. It's gotten a lot worse by these presidents who, who behave like they're kings and they can't get stuff through Congress, so they just decide that they're unilaterally going to do it. And, and I, I, have, I have real issues with, with that. I mean, I think that's why we have different branches of government, and it troubles me. And again, Trump did it. I get it. Obama did it a lot. Biden has done it a lot, but I, I'm see. I believe that you know presidents should have to go through Congress, things like that, and and if you want to, for example, suspend the gas tax, I think that's it should start with Congress. Whether or not a president can do it unilaterally, I, I'm not positive. Given all the things that Biden and Trump and Obama seem to think that they could do by themselves, I, I suspect that this is something that Biden certainly. My God, Biden seems to think, at least on some days, he seems to think that he can just magically, you know, make one point six trillion dollars in student loan debt go away. I mean, it's which I, I don't believe is legal. So I don't know what the limits are, but I think it's something that would certainly be worth exploring. And if it gets the president credit for helping and reduce prices at the pump. Well, that's fine because he's getting the blame for a lot of the increase.
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. One final thought on our, our conversation for the last hour about what, what I think should happen, which is do away with the minimum markup law in Wisconsin, moratorium on the state sales tax and it's on gasoline, and it all starts with the governor. And somebody said, well, you know, Jeff, you got to check your facts. Governor Evers proposed eliminating the minimum markup law. Well, in 2019, he did that. But as part and parcel of eliminating the minimum markup law, he wanted to increase the state's gasoline tax, and he also wanted to index it for inflation. Can you imagine if Evers had gotten his way and it had been indexed for inflation? Can you imagine what the gasoline tax would be now? So, the, 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 yes, he, he said, I'd get rid of the minimum markup law, but he put a poison pill in it saying, I, I want to also then dramatically increase the gas tax, which would pretty much guaranteed that any savings consumers got from the minimum markup law would have been gone with increased taxes. So, no, that's that. I'm sorry. He doesn't get credit for that. We need to repeal the minimum markup law and put a moratorium on the state gasoline tax, period. All right. Let us let us take on a difficult topic. Now, let me kind of back into this. Um, I I believe Ronald Reagan was the greatest president in my lifetime. Um, I remember when Ronald Reagan was running for president in 1980. And at the time when he was running for president, there was much, much hand-wringing and gnashing of teeth over the fact that Running for president in 1980, when he, if he was elected, he would be 69 years old. And, and there was this huge conversation about, are you too, he's too old. It's 69 year, years old, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, he went on to win. And then in 1984, um, if, if you recall, the history of this is kind of, he was running against Walter Mondale, who was a senator from, from Minnesota and who had been uh, Jimmy Carter's vice president. And Mondale, there, there was, again, with some of his allies in the mainstream media, it was, oh, Reagan's, Reagan's too old. And at the time he was running for re-election, he was 70, what, 73 years old. And in his first debate, uh, Reagan kind of stumbled a little bit. And that, 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 oh, is he too old? Is he too, you know, feeble to do the job, et cetera? And that's, that's when Reagan had one of the, the great all-time lines uh, of, in political debates. And he said, look, I, I much has been made a debate has been made about you know my age and I, I just I promise that I'm not going to make any comments about uh, my opponent's youth and inexperience in the next debate and that kind of diffused the whole thing and Ronald Reagan went on to serve uh, two terms and I think you can argue that at the end of his second term he was showing the signs of age right Joe Biden when Joe Biden took office he was older than Reagan was when when he left. Now I, I understand there's all, if you were following the news at all over this weekend, there was a lot of stories about you saw when Joe Biden fell off his bike, and you know there were there were all these questions about oh he fell off his bike, you know is this a sign of age? I I don't read anything into that, but I do think I think it is fair to say that you cannot look at Biden now and not see that he is not as sharp as he might have been 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. I think you, you can see the signs of age. And if 
That has nothing to do with whether he's a superior candidate to Donald Trump, whatever. But whether you're a Biden fan or a Biden hater, if you don't recognize that he, he stumbles, uh, if you don't recognize that he is more hesitant than perhaps he would have been 10 or 20 years ago, you're, you're, you're just in denial. And, and this is not this is not an adverse reflect. He, he's almost for God's sake, he's almost 80 years old. All right. And without being ageist, I think people, most people who are approaching 80 years old will tell you that they are not as vital and as vibrant as they were when they were 70 or 60 or 50 or 40. That is just the reality of the aging process. And I'm not saying people can't be sharp, and I'm not saying that Joe Biden is infirm, but I think he shows the signs of age. If he were to run for re-election in, 1990, in 1994, 2024, he would be like 82 years old, which means if he were re-elected, he would be 86 years old when his second term would expire. Now, I, I don't want to make this conversation about, about Biden. And I understand that because we're so tied into personality, sometimes it, it's tough to just, just kind of avoid that but 855-616-1620 that's the acunate mortgage talk and text line all right i i think there's no question that joe biden is showing his age that, that's just the reality in fairness i think ronald reagan at the end of his second term showed his age here is my question have we reached a point we have a minimum age requirement you got to be 35 to be president wouldn't it make sense on the flip side, to have a maximum age requirement. And I, I don't know what that age requirement would be. You know, maybe it's, all right, uh, you, you can't commence a, a term as president, you know, um, after the age of 70 or 75. I don't know what that age requirement is. But at some point in time, we all, age catches up with all of us. And... Wouldn't it make sense to say there is a certain point beyond which, you know, you're not saying that you have to, you know, go sit in a canoe and get put on an ice, on an ice float, an iceberg, and float it out to, to sea, but to be the president of the United States, to be a U.S. senator, my gosh, you've got you got people that are going to be in their 90s when they complete their terms. Wouldn't it make sense to put some upper age limit on this as well? 855-616-1620. The one that kind of bangs around my head says, okay, maybe you shouldn't be able to commence a, a term as a U.S. senator or the president beyond the age of 70, you know, maybe 75. But this idea that you have people who are in, in their 80s or in their 90s, I'm sorry. I just don't think that's good for government. I don't think it's good for the country. I don't think it's good for the people that are trying to cling to power. 855-616-1620. What do you think? So very glad to have you with us. We've got a slight problem with our phones. We're working on that right now, but lots of texts. If you're just tuning in, what uh, we're discussing is, and I, I don't mean to make this about Biden, all right? Uh, I, I because you know we, we can talk about Reagan if you want to talk about that, but I, I do think there is a point. If Joe Biden were to run for reelection in 2024 and be reelected, he'd be 82 years old. All right, when he when he was first inaugurated a couple years ago, he was older than Ronald Reagan was when Ronald Reagan left 
office and and everybody was worried about Ronald Reagan and, and mental capacity. I don't think in fairness there's any way you can look at Joe Biden and not see that he's slipping in some regards. Now, it doesn't mean he's not competent and things like that, but it is just a, a function of age. Now, one of our texters said, Jeff, if you had to vote to put an age limit on radio broadcasters, would you do it? That's what you're asking for here. To which, first of all, I, I think there's a difference between the public and private sector, but Having said that, there's lots of companies that have mandatory retirement ages. This is not an uncommon sort of thing. Many, if not most, of the major law firms across the country, for example, have, have deals that when you hit... 65 or 68 or 70 or whatever you're you know you you've got to move on to some swarm of senior status or something like that it, it is not unusual many many businesses have policies that say that okay it's 65 especially for CEOs and high level executives that, that you're out that that's that's just it and the idea is because you have to have a succession plan and things of the like so th- this is not an unusual thing you know in the real world. Um, you know, Jeff, I think, let me just read some of the text while we're working on the phones. Cut the uh, salary for anyone who gets a check from the taxpayers. Age 70, you get 75% of your salary, 80, 50%, 90, 25. No, I, I don't think it's it's that. Um, and somebody's saying, well, Jeff, who hasn't caught their to- their toe in a, in a bike toe clip? That That's not the point. I, I'm not talking about his fall and does that, make him feeble and unable to stay in office. I am saying objectively, if you if you watch the Biden press conferences and you look at some of his reactions and stuff, I just don't think he's as sharp as, as he would have been 10 or 20 years ago. I'm not saying he's incapable of doing the job, but I am saying that I think that just like we have a lower limit on ages, I think there's nothing wrong with having an upper age limit a, as well. And that's that's it. I think that's kind of the reality of this. Jeff, term limits would help this for this in Congress and the Senate. Last term as president must start with by the age of 70. Yeah, for my particular situation, you know, what I'm talking about here, term limits, you know, the, the president is term limited. But I think something reasonable would say that you can't commence a term, you know, um, beyond the age of, of 70. Or if you think that that's too restrictive, that you can't uh, you can't begin a, a term as president or the U.S. Senate um, beyond the age of seventy-five. At that point in time, I think it's it's reasonable. Jeff, I am disturbed how much I'm agreeing with you today. Yes, an upper age limit and term limits for all federally elected officials is a must. Seventy or seventy-five is time is fine. Term limits of twelve years in the House, twelve years as a senator. I think that that's enough as well. Jeff, another consideration is how quickly people can decline in even a year or two when they are in the 70s. That's a that's a very interesting point. And if you are a regular listener of this program, you know that from time to time I, I irritate some of you when I, I argue that beyond a certain age, I think that there should be, in order to renew your driver's license, I think you should have to do it every two years, and I think that there should be a a road test as well. In Wisconsin now, and I don't want to get too far afield, but in Wisconsin, let's say you're 80 years old, you can go in, you can, you know, if you pass that little visual test, you can effectively renew your license for eight years, um, unless 
you're involved in an accident or something like that. I I have a lot can happen between 80 and 88. And I understand that senior drivers are, um, you know, statistically, you know, they don't tend to drive as much and maybe don't pose as much a risk as, say, that the the 25 year old driver. But your skills atrophy and it it can happen. It's like falling off a cliff, you know, and and the difference between somebody who can be completely vibrant, you know, one day and then two years later, just be really struggling. And, And you can see that with politics as well. Let's see, Jeff, I 100% agree that there should be term limits, especially age limits. I have worked in geriatrics, and yes, there are some people who are as quick as a whip and have their faculties, but no matter um, what, what, once we get past the age of 75, we do start to have diminishing abilities. And why on earth would these people want to stay doing this, enjoy retirement? In many cases, it all comes down to greed and power. And I, I want people to understand I have, I have friends who who are quick and vibrant, and they are in their upper seventies and they are in their eighties. Almost all of those folks would tell you that they do not have the same energy that they had twenty years ago, or certainly forty years ago. And all of them would also tell you that I mean, there's just stuff that, that happens. It's, it's minor memory lapses. It's things of of the like, and. I think you are seeing that. And again, I don't mean to make this about Biden specifically, but Biden happens to be the president of the United States now. You can pick some of the people that are in their 80s that are running for Senate or running for reelection or in the Senate. It's kind of like, look, isn't it time to say, let's put these limits on and let's turn this over to a newer generation? And one of the reasons you need the limits is because in many states, the, the truth of the matter is the incumbents are, are so entrenched that unless okay let's take california as an example you know a republican's not going to win a statewide election in california probably in the rest of my lifetime unless something dramatic happens so you've got incumbent senators who are there forever and ever they've they've got a huge you know campaign war chest and even if they're really too old to do the job if they don't want to step down unless somebody is going to challenge them from inside the party and run on a campaign of hey you know you're you're senile which nobody is going to do, you're not going to get any significant challenge. That's why you need the change in the law. And don't interpret this as an anti-Biden thing, although I do think it's fair to say Biden is slipping. Just talk about a good government thing, and maybe this is something we should all agree on, an upper age limit. Is that too much to ask? Here's a text. Jeff, should Bob Uecker retire? Well, let, let me. first of all, I hope Bob never retires, but that's an interesting point. Bob has scaled back his job dramatically. Bob no longer travels with the, the team. He does the, the home games. He does an absolutely great job, but he'll be the first to tell you, and I mean, he's, that it just, the, the travel after a certain point and the, the, the strain of, you know, getting into towns in the middle of the night and things like that, it, it got to be, I don't want to say it was too much, but it just got to be no fun or whatever. So he has pulled back and, in many respects, extended his career, and I think we all love it. He is an absolute institution, but that's kind of the point. Now, the President of the United States doesn't have that option to say, hey, I'm only going to work home games. And with, with all due respect to the great job Bob Huker does, being the President of the United States is a whole different can of worms and different you know challenges that are there um i have a one of the texts here from somebody who says look i'm i'm 80 years old and i'm i'm really really sharp i'm considered to be very sharp but having said that um i don't 
I don't think people beyond the ages of 70 or 72, I don't think that uh, they should be the ones that um, are, are there. Right, it's actually the text. Jeff, I'm 80 and considered very sharp. So speaking from experience, there is no way we should have a president after the ages of 70 or 72. A number of people are pointing out that pilots are required to retire at the age of 65. Now, again, there's some, there's some special skills involved with that, but we do have mandatory retirement ages that are out there. Well, somebody said, well, the Supreme Court would strike this down. Well, that's why you would need a constitutional amendment. We are talking about things in theory. But, you know, really, at some point in time, we've all got to face the inevitable fact that as we get older, our our various skills atrophy. And there's perhaps a a point in time and, and maybe, you know, with the stresses and strains of being the leader of the free world, you know, maybe maybe 70 or 75 or certainly 80, maybe that should be the object lesson to say, you know, it's not that you can't be a valuable and vital contributor to society, but maybe you shouldn't be holding that particular job. And one one final thought on the last part of our conversation. Just like I would impose age limits on the president and on congressmen and on senators, I would also impose age limits on the the Supreme Court justices and on federal judges and federal appellate court judges as as well. I, I understand why back in the day you had lifetime tenure, but lifetimes are a lot longer. And this idea that you have Supreme Court justices who decide to stay in office with all due respect well after their sell by date uh just to hang on because they either don't want to give it up or they don't want to give a president of another party the appointment or whatever it's just it's it's not good for the the country to have people who might have been legal giants in, in their day but are hanging out when they're you know 80 or 85 when clearly their skills have atrophy there's and that's just kind of the reality of this so yeah i'd put limits on supreme court judges and i'd also put limits mandatory retirement ages on federal judges and appellate court justices as well i think that's when when the constitution was originally founded people did not live anywhere near as long as they do now i, I think you know if, if you thought back into the 1800s or even the early 1900s this if you anticipated that there there just still be lots and lots of people on the appellate court branch or on the supreme court when they were in their 80s it, it just wouldn't be thought of because people didn't live it to to their 80s you know they just they just didn't ordinary lifespans were much different so that's changed so i'd I would make that change as well. All right. We are stirring the pot on a holiday afternoon. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And we've kind of figured out a workaround for our phones here, so appreciate that. All right. I want to talk about a different aspect of the student loan moratorium than we've talked about before. We have had conversations in the past because in an effort to buy votes, essentially, Joe Biden has talked about forgiving student loan debt. Right now, there's $1.6 trillion in student loan debt that's out there. Chuck Schumer and um, uh, Elizabeth Warren, they're pushing him to just do away with all of it and just wave his magic wand and make it go away, which I don't think you can do. 
Biden has first he was talking about maybe making $50,000 in student loan debt go away. The problem with that is that tends to benefit the 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 well off. You know, if you went to that Ivy League school, you know, you've and you're you know have the potential to make a huge uh, amount of money, you're the one that has the the more debt. So is that really fair? So Biden is apparently considering just lopping $10,000 in student loan debt off of everybody's um uh, everybody's loans. The problem, again, is I don't think he legally has the ability to do that. And if he comes out and announces that, there, there's going to be all sorts of court cases. And it's not necessarily a political winner because for every person who says, oh, that that's great, I have a student loan, and now the taxpayers are going to pick up $10,000 or $50,000 the tab, there's all sorts of taxpayers, you know, people who – paid for their own college educations or took out loans and paid them back or scrimped and saved so their kids didn't have to take out loans. You know, all those different things, and they're the ones that are going to be saying, well, well, what about me? I don't want to talk about that aspect because there's another aspect of the student loan debt issue, which is coming up, well, probably in about two months or so. In March of 2020, under Donald Trump, so I say this at the beginning. I understand this started with Trump. At the time the pandemic hit and everything shut down because of COVID and businesses shut down and people were suddenly unemployed at that time, which was an extraordinary time in American history, we started a moratorium on people having to repay their student loans. We also declared a moratorium on the interest increasing. So if you owed $20,000 as of March of 2020, because of executive order, you no longer had to make payments on, you didn't have to make your monthly payments, and the interest did not accrue. Also, if you were delinquent on your student loans, any effort at trying to collect that delinquency stopped. So th- that was March of, tw- of 2020. So you go through the summer of 2020, you go through the fall 2020, the winter of 2021, you go through all of 2021, and that moratorium on having to make monthly student loan payments has been in place. Now, let us be honest. The economic consequences of of the pandemic and inflation and things like that, I, I understand that that has an effect and that's still there. But the truth of the matter is people are back to work. If you're not back to work, it's because you don't want to go back to work. That That's it. And you have been for a long time. And people are making car payments and they're making mortgage payments and they are buying things. As a matter of fact, One of the reasons why we have skyrocketing inflation is people are buying too many things. And yet the moratorium on student loans and having to make student loan payments continues. And now I was just looking at something from last week. The education department, this is this is Biden's education department, is now saying that they are seriously considering continuing to extend the moratorium on student loan payments. Right now, it's supposed to um, expire at the end of August. So that will be almost two and a half years. And the justification originally was pandemic, economy has cratered, 
people aren't working. It's now two and a half years later. And in this case, the Biden Education Department is still now saying, "Okay, well, we we think there's a very good chance that we're going to continue to extend the moratorium on having to make payments on student loans. Now, just so you understand, it costs the taxpayers about four point three B as in billion dollars every month. We do not collect student loans and the, the debt on those. And meanwhile, the debt is just kind of frozen, but it costs that. So the um, the Department of Education, now I, this is from the beginning of the year, the Department of Education recently reported the pause in student loan repayment has cost the government, this is as of the beginning of the year, $98.4 billion so far. The number that will continue to rise until the moratorium is lifted in May of 22. No, 2022. No, and the moratorium wasn't lifted. It's about $4.3 billion per month. So by the time August rolls around, you know, taxpayers will have shelled out somewhere in the neighborhood of $130 billion to not collect on student loans. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't want to I, – I understand why we declared the moratorium on having to pay student loan debt in, in March of 2020 because the economy was in a pandemic-caused shambles. People lost their jobs, and the, the idea was, you know, we, we just want to try to get people through it. I, I understand why that was continued. I can even understand why maybe as of – I don't know, the first quarter of last year we continued it. But there is no, at least in my opinion, reason on God's green earth that we are not making people make their monthly payments. And again, this has nothing to do with whether we're going to ultimately forgive all the debt or not. But if we did this because of the pandemic, at this point in time, is this the idea of never let a good emergency go to to, to waste? It almost almost makes me wonder about if we're going to put in these things permanently under the guise of emergency, can we really afford to do it? 855-616-1620. I, I'm sorry. It's way beyond time to make people start repaying their student loans. And to me, again, it's a separate conversation about whether we're going to come in and wave our magic wand and make 1.6 T as in trillion dollars disappear. But until that decision is met, isn't it time for people to start making their monthly payments and for the interest to start accruing again? What possible justification could there be for two plus years you know, after COVID, now that we're pretty much through the pandemic, what possible justification could there be for not making people to have to at least start to make monthly payments on their loans? You've got to make your payments on everything else. 855-616-1620. 855-616-1620. Jill in Oak Creek. Jill, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Yeah, I just wanted to say that, you know, when my son was younger, my husband was laid off, gotten free lunches. And I'm like, no, we can afford to pay for my own child's lunch. We're not going to take hands out. Now that my son is 28 and he has a student loan, I found myself thinking to tell him, like, you know what? Even though you don't have to pay, you should still be paying, like, 100 bucks a month. You're still working. Mm-hmm. You need to pay that off. And I stopped myself, and I said, you know what? Don't be a sucker. <laughs> don't pay this off when somebody that went to school for something useless 
might get it forgiven. And I'm like, and it bothers me that I'm doing that because that's, that's not the way I was raised. But it's like, you know, I feel like we've been suckers for paying things off and for doing without when other people are getting rent assistance and heat assistance and whatever. So, you know, we'll be in trouble if everybody's thinking that way. But I think that's what the Democrat Party wants. They want us dependent on them. Well, it, th- Joe, thanks for calling. You know, it's interesting. You raise a couple points in that call. Um, and, and actually, one of our texters has sort of the opposite position. Jeff, regarding student loan deferral, the smart people have been paying their normal loan payment this whole time. My daughter and son-in-law both teach, never lost a paycheck. They kept paying the normal amount. These payments have all gone to principal. So, yeah, because because interest hasn't been running. It's like an interest-free loan. So they've been reducing their, their principal because they're betting that at some point in time the gravy train is going to come to an end and that the loans aren't going to be forgiven. Now, to your point, Jill, if if ultimately Joe Biden decides that he's going, and this would never get through Congress, but decides that legally can wave a magic wand and make all the student loan debt disappear, the, the people who have been paying during the moratorium, yeah, they, they're sort of chumps because if they would have just sat it out, all their loans would have been forgiven. I don't think that's the way it's, it's going to play out. I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, I have an estimate. It's from a couple months ago, but the the Fed, the government estimates that about about half of the student loan borrowers have been continuing to make their payments even during the pandemic halt because of, of precisely that situation. They're they're still working. I mean, it, it's not like. Okay, even if you don't have to make the payment, you know that that debt is out there. They were still working. They they had the wherewithal to do it. So for those people, actually, it's going to turn out to be a very, very smart move if if ultimately – you know, everybody's going to have to go back to making payments because, like I say, they've been able to just reduce principal and reduce principal and reduce principal simply by making those payments. I, I guess regardless of how you feel about the whole deferral thing, though, it, my larger point is we put the moratorium in place because we had the COVID emergency in March of 2020, uh, March of yeah, 2020. Now, two plus years later, that emergency is over. And there is no moral justification to allow people to continue to not make their payments. It, it, there just isn't, except for the fact that you're trying to, again, you know, buy votes or, or whatever. But meanwhile, the tab, it costs the government four plus B as in billion dollars every month when we don't make these collections. And, and, and I mean, I, I get it. If you're, if you're sitting there with a $50,000 student loan, there's all sorts of things that you might want to spend your, your, and you're working and you're bringing in money and all of a sudden you don't have to make this payment. I understand why there's a temptation to not do it, but, I don't know. You're, you're going to have to pay the piper sometime, aren't you? John on the north side. John, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. How you doing, man? Good. Look, good. Uh, they need to pay that loan back. They need to pay it back. You know, I mean, these people are building $300,000 homes and they're driving around in Lexus, you know, and, and they're doctors. And, 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 you know, I mean, my credit ain't the best in the world, but I don't have no school loans, you know. <laughs> I mean, you need to. They need to take care of that. Yeah, no, John, thanks. So. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. Here's a text that kind of says, it. look, Jeff, the pandemic presented some unique financial challenges to students. I agree. But now those payments should resume. And, and that's that's my point. And again, I, yes, and I understand for people who want to make this political and say, well, you know, Trump's the one that started the moratorium. I get it. But 
things were different in March of 2020. In March of 2020, because of COVID, we had the government essentially that ordered the shutdown of huge chunks of, of industry. And then beyond the government shutdowns that had been ordered, you know, you had just, just people who just weren't going out and people weren't spending money and people weren't earning money and all these things. And, and businesses were, were in a world of hurt. That was a temporary sort of situation. And now, look, I understand that there's some businesses that aren't fully back from COVID and things like that. I, I understand that. It's going to be a long crawl back. But there's no justification. That justification that existed in March of 2020 to say, all right, we're going to temporarily suspend your payments, it doesn't exist anymore. Nobody can credibly argue that it does. Let's talk to Ken in New Berlin. Ken, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, um, you were talking about one reason why why it, there were no reasons on God being earth that it right. should uh, not resume. There's one. The company that was collecting the student loans went out of business. They had no income. So the government has to, has to contract with a new company. And those are all new computer systems and the payment systems and such. So they don't think they'll have those ready until January. So one of the reasons it might be delayed yet again, not that goes, is just the fact that they don't have a way to collect. Well, can, I guess I, that's the first. Thanks for calling. That's the first I've heard about that. I mean, I guess the only reason I'm kind of questioning. That is that I'm, I'm hearing from a number of people who have continued to be billed during over the course of the last two and a half years and have continued to make payments again because, you know, COVID didn't impact. I don't want to say it didn't impact them, but they had their money. Jeff, my daughter is thrilled that she got her loan paid off and saved thousands of dollars in interest. Uh, Jeff, my daughter paid her loans herself. My granddaughter graduated two years ago, and her loans are almost paid for. My grandson is in his senior year, has gone to Concordia, working two jobs. He's making the payment. So I, 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 I guess I find it hard to believe the government couldn't find a way to pay these back because, like I say, about half of the people have continued to make payments and are continuing to make payments, which actually is a pretty smart thing because they've been able to dramatically reduce their principal. If Biden does go ahead and cancel student loan debt, yes, they would be chumps, just like all the rest of us who paid back student loans would be chumps, or all the people who you know took out, failed to take out student loans and saved and were responsible over the years, um, they would be chumps for having to pay back the loans. But again, I don't think that's going to happen. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Okay, Alex Crow, you're the news person extraordinaire. Why don't you help me out on something here? No, no, no. I'm, okay, I, I just, I've always struggled I, I, with the pronunciation. The former Mayor Pete, the guy who ran mm-hmm. for president, who is now the uh, transportation secretary, last name B U T T I G E I G. Okay, how would you, how do you pronounce his last name? I have seen people close to him before say it's supposed to be Boot Edge Edge, like E D G E E D G E, like Boot Edge Edge, or uh, Pete Boot a Judge. So uh, okay. I don't know. You know, all right. My producer Charlie wants to wait in. How are you going to pronounce it? I've always gone with Boot a Judge. 
Buddha judge. Okay, right. That's okay. So, so Buddha judge. Yeah. And that's I'm I'm looking, and I've I've heard it all these sort of different ways. And I admit, there's I, I've wrestled. I, I wrestle with this, and I I want to talk about him. And I, I I don't. Somebody always says, "Oh, you're being disrespectful." No, no. I'm just I'm wrestling because it's a difficult name to pronounce. Mm-hmm. So, so we're going to go with Buddha judge. That's yeah. that's it. Okay, that's that's who we talk about. Okay, good enough. There, <laughs> that's yeah, and yeah. Like I'm looking at the pronouncer, and it's like. B o o t u h j e j Buttigieg, okay, something yeah. like that. Or we'll, we will. We're talking about Mayor Pete, who is now the Secretary of Transportation. Who, you know, at some point in time, you know, maybe some people thought he had a, a an ability to. He might be the President of the United States someday. You know that I think. I don't think it, it certainly wasn't his time a couple of years ago. But but who knows? So any event, he is in the news, and. Alex, you were mentioning to me off air that was it your 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 sister was trying to was traveling yeah. over the weekend. Tell mm-hmm. me that story quick. Yeah, she had a, a conference in um, Boston this past weekend. Flew out there. Conference was great. Ended up so crazy that a lot of the hotels had double booked rooms in Boston. Some of her teammates didn't even have their hotel rooms that they had booked. Then when it was time to go, flights got canceled. They got stuck there for another full 24 hours. So it was just one of those weekends with the uh, airline industry in 2022. Right. So here, here is, it was really, it was bad. I mean, because this was Father's Day weekend and Juneteenth holiday. So lots and lots of people were traveling. And this is after, you know, the Memorial Day holiday as well. So here's the latest numbers I have. More than two and a half million people traveled through TSA checkpoints on Friday alone. As of early afternoon on Friday, American Airlines, uh, airlines in America, not just American Airlines, <laughs> airlines in America had canceled more than 1,100 flights by early afternoon, following more than 1,700 cancellations on Thursday. And it really didn't get a lot better over the rest of the weekend. Um, in, in part, let's see. Uh, Right. In part, let's see, disruptions came on the heels of, well, they estimate that there were close to 10,000 disruptions over the over the weekend. And there were a ton of cancellations over Memorial Day, in part because you, you had that bad weather that was moving through the country, and that caused disruptions. So that that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that the airlines essentially shut down during the pandemic. And now, because people were traveling, and so they, they cut back dramatically. And that means they laid off staff, and people went on, and they got other jobs, etc. Well, now, demand for travel is back, and it's back in a big way. Business travel isn't to where it was, but still, leisure travel, especially over these holiday weekends, people are, are traveling all over. So you, you have the airlines that are kind of in a whipsaw situation. They had shut down. They do not have enough pilots. They do not have enough ground crew. They do not have enough air staff. And so you've got this problem, and you've got this increased demand that's out there. Then you factor in, you know, the the weather problems, which always go around, and and you have this cascading chain of problems, which is – Okay, we, we've got this bad weather system that's moving through, and we've had to delay or cancel all these flights, and we don't have enough, you know, other flights to book people on, and it, it's just a mess. So that's, that is the reality of air travel right now in 2022, that you're, you, you just don't know. You hope for the best, but you realize that if something happens to your flight, and it might not even be the, the fault of the airline, if there's bad weather and flights get canceled, you're going to be in trouble. 
and you might have to prepare yourself to stay an extra day or two in the city where you're in and then book alternative flights. Okay, so that's, but that's just the reality of what is going on. So that, that brings me to the transportation secretary. Transport, I'm looking at a story in the Wall Street Journal from a day or two ago. Transportation secretary Pete Buttigieg is putting airlines on notice that he expects summer operations to go smoothly as carriers gear up for what is expected to be a busy travel season. In a meeting on, this was last Thursday, with airline CEOs and industry officials, Buttigieg pressed airlines to detail the steps they're taking going into the July 4th holiday and the rest of the summer. And apparently he went ahead and he, he said, look, if if we have these problems, if we have airlines canceling flights, well, you know, we're going to take enforcement action against you. He demanded that they stress test the schedules they've planned for coming months to make sure they have enough staffing to reliably operate flights and can recover when things go wrong. He also urged airlines to improve customer service after flights are canceled in the wake of customer complaints that airline call centers have been overwhelmed. So he's, you know, he's saying, look, if if you if you can't guarantee that these flights aren't going to be canceled, etc., and you're going to be more responsive, well, the government's going to come in and we're going to start fining you and things like that. Our number is 855-616-1620. To me, that is kind of like saying to the wind, I don't want you to blow 30 miles an hour wind. I, I I, I'm, I'm reading these stories, and you, you almost want to say, you know, Earth to Transportation Secretary Pete. What what are you talking about? I mean, the, the airlines, do you think the airlines want to cancel flights? Do you think the airlines want to delay people? Do you think the airlines don't want to, you know, continue to operate at full capacity? Uh, of course they do. But the problem is, just like so many other industries, the, the airlines, they, they don't have enough pilots, and they can't find enough pilots. They don't have enough people in the call centers. They don't have enough people that are trained to work the ground crews, etc., etc. And to, for the government to come in and threaten these airlines, to me, it, it's like you, you just want to like pull out your hair and say, okay, what, what are you telling them? They, they want to do all this stuff. They just aren't they're not back yet so i mean what what is the the option and and they're very i mean it's a fragile transportation system right now you could argue it was always a fragile transportation system but now it's worse because whatever safety net a lot of these airlines had they they don't they don't have anymore okay our number is 855-616-1620 that is the accurate mortgage talk and text line I, i think if i was an airline executive in one of these meetings and i'm having the secretary of transportation threaten me with fines and enforcement action if i i cancel flights because a month's you know, windstorm blows through the country or major thunderstorms and you've got to cancel flights or, you know, a bunch of pilots come down with COVID and they're, they're not able to fly. My response is going to be, excuse me, Mr. Secretary, what exactly do you think it is that we can do? 855-616-1620. We discuss. 855-616-1620. I- Look, I, I understand traveling nowadays is, is a struggle. I, I get it. And it's no fun, you know, 
finding out you show up at the airport and you're expecting to come back on Sunday and your flight's been canceled because 1,800 flights have been canceled because there's a monster storm that blew through the, 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 the country and they don't have backup pilots and everything's out of whack. I understand the frustrations people have, but... It, the, the airlines are dealing with that, too. So when I hear that the transportation secretary is, has a meeting and he's threatening, well, we're going to demand enforcement action unless you, you know, don't cancel as many flights and unless you improve your, your customer service at the call centers. Do you think the airlines don't want to do that? Well, they don't have people. They don't have enough people in the call centers, which is a problem that most people are, are finding. They don't have enough people to do these jobs. They're short on pilots. They're just... They are struggling, and it's a very, very fragile transportation system. And I, I don't understand what the purpose of threatening the airlines is because they don't want to cancel the flights. Let's start with Scott. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, I'm saying we're not totally blaming the airlines here. Back the last week of April, we were leaving from Milwaukee via to Tampa, and we had a 6 o'clock flight. At which time, when we got to Concourse C, you know, you try to get there two hours ahead, as they request. Right. Uh, the line was backed up all the way from the TSA all the way to the Concourse. Mm-hmm. People were not happy. <laughs> yeah. They did not have enough TSA people for that morning. <laughs> and when I wrote my congressman, I asked him if he knew what the, you know happens with people getting to the airport. Do they know how they should know how many people are coming for that morning? Am I correct? Assume that. Well, you would think so. You got to schedule planes. You know yeah. what flights are leaving. Sure, yeah. Right, and, and then you know when we returned a week later, yes, we were delayed about five six hours, and that was because of heavy storms. What are you going to do? Uh, you know, as you're saying, but the TSA problem—that's their fault. And people were not happy, like I said. Yeah. I, and I got to imagine some people missed their flights. Well, right. I think so. You know, it, it is. It is. It is sort of funny. Somebody's texting and saying, "Well, okay, maybe, maybe Pete should." You know, instead of yelling at the airline CEOs, maybe he should, like, talk to the Treasury Department and, and ask why the IRS is months and months behind in processing tax returns and refunds and things like that. Jeff, my current employer has been full speed ahead on training for several years now, and our schedules increased with COVID because we're freight. I can't imagine being back at the passenger airlines trying to fit 1,000 pilots through a 100-pilot pipeline. It's not a matter of just hiring more pilots. It's requalifying pilots who were dormant during COVID slowdowns, transitioning pilots who are upgrading or changing aircraft as pilots retire, and a lot are retiring, and trying to hire and train to keep up with retirements and post-COVID schedule expansions. The training departments and supporting companies aren't designed to handle this kind of demand. The big passenger airlines generally aren't struggling to find candidates. It's the training footprint that is slowing things down. And I I just, you know... Part of it, the thing that bothers me about this is, is you know, the government is trying to find scapegoats here. I understand the public is upset. I, I get all that. And, I mean, I, I've actually flown quite a bit over the course of the last two years. And I actually, you know, I haven't had those problems. I try to fly direct flights and things like that. But, I, I mean, we've been knock on wood. We've been pretty lucky so far. But, I, I mean, I, I understand that right now there's just they're working without a net and like threatening the CEOs with enforcement and you know if, if you don't upgrade the call centers and improve that well the airlines said we don't have enough people that are working in the call centers right now let's talk to Susan in Waukesha hi Susan you're on WTMJ hi uh, to the last thing that you read a hundred percent I have to echo that 
um, with a uh, family of uh, pilots. My brother retired last week, mandatory, 65. Uh, his last flight, he was uh, had a uh, illness, so he wasn't even able to fly, fly his last flight. I have another brother that's retiring in six years. There is going to be Armageddon. There is a lot of pilots that are retiring in the next 10 years, and they used to get a lot from the military. With the military drawdown, there's not as many. During COVID, they furloughed people, yep. um, and I know that they are hiring as fast as they can, but to his point, it's the training. They have to be qualified, and they're only qualified on one piece of equipment, so you can't just say, hey, just jump into this other plane and fly it. The other gentleman was blaming the TSA. They have illnesses and stuff, too. So, you know, they know how many people are coming through, but it's a very delicate balance. And yeah. I had a coworker that um, ended up, his flight was canceled on Saturday, and I coordinate travel for my company. And he was told he would get out on the 21st. Well, I ended up buying another ticket, and then we get use that credit for something else. Thank goodness, because it was business travel, and we were able to do that. But, you know, for the government to yell at the – if you think that they're happy about this situation, no. This is it, – it is a delicate balance, and they are doing – a lot of the airlines have uh, established flight schools. They're going into high schools. They're offering full scholarships. And it, the part of the problem is, you know, like I said, they used to get it from the military. Well, it's a very expensive uh, transition if you are getting a private pilot to go corporate and to get into the commercial airlines. People don't want to spend the money. So it's a very, very difficult situation. And I tell you, it is going to get worse before it gets better, unfortunately. Well, well yeah, and it's people not... People need to be patient and don't blame all of the people standing at the counter. Well, right. Or, I mean, and I understand the frustration for people calling the 800 numbers and, you know, you're getting the busy signals or you're getting put on hold forever. But it's this is this is just a product of coming out of the pandemic. <laughs> Absolutely. I was on the phone for two hours on Saturday rebooking this gentleman's flight. That was just one person, and they were doing the best that they could. So, you know, I mean, it's it, – and, and the part – the problem is that there is more weather-related than there ever used to be. And I think, you know, people talk about global warming. I don't know about that. But it, there does seem to be more severe weather, and they are doing the best they can. And part of the problem is when severe weather happens, they also have to take different routes, yeah. which then people miss connections, and it's a domino effect. And because of all of the cost, they have less flights in there. They're fully booked. Yeah. And when you have one coming in, and one other real quick thing is a lot of times they'll be like, well, you're the first flight of the morning. How can you... You, how can you cancel the first flight of the morning? If that pilot is delayed getting into his destination or her, his or her destination in the evening, there's a mandatory number of hours that they have to rest before they're legal to fly. So a lot of times that first morning flight is canceled or delayed just due to yeah. the regulations that they are following. And if you think that the pilots or the, or the rest of the crew wants to do that no they feel as bad as everybody else yeah hey thanks no thanks to call susan that's and i'm glad you make a couple really good points because i I mean many of look a a lot of the stuff that happens is is really beyond the control of the airlines because it's, it's the weather and those sort of things and 
And it is interesting that if if the transportation secretary is beating up on the airlines, in part, just to your point, Susan, it's it's because in certain respects, because of the regulations they have. Okay, well, no, the the pilot needed X amount of downtime, so we we couldn't have him on that seven or her on that seven a.m. flight, and so that threw off that schedule. Now nobody is advocating. I don't think they're advocating. We want you to cut corners, and we want you to get that pilot on. It's just. We are coming out of the pandemic. There is all sorts of issues that are related to this. So what's Debbie Lazaga's phrase? If you're traveling, you've got to kind of pack your patience here. But it did strike me as interesting. The transportation secretary is, well, you know, we, we want to say that we're doing something because consumers are unhappy. Well, okay, you can't make, wave a magic wand and make this problem, like, go away. And I think the airlines are doing the best they can. Now, if I get stuck in... Alaska, or I get stuck in Las Vegas, or I get stuck in Florida my last cu- next couple trips, maybe I'll have a different sense of it. But I'm trying to look at the big picture. Somebody's texting me, Jeff, they anticipate that 30,000 air transport pilots will be retiring in the next five years. The airlines are faced with huge skilled labor shortages for the foreseeable future. Yeah, like I say, the, the transportation secretary, you know, Pete Buttigieg, he, he can go and he can threaten the airlines, and we're going to do this and that, do everything. To me, in many respects, that's kind of like saying, wind, I don't want you blowing 30 miles an hour because I don't want to have to, I don't know, I want to play pickleball and I don't want the ball blowing all that. You, you know, you, you can yell at them, but there's only so much you can do unless you've got a constructive alternative. Here's a text, Jeff. Just flew last week. Initial flight from Milwaukee was delayed. Um, first it was delayed, then delayed, then canceled. Delta staff had us on a bus to Chicago, then direct to Savannah. Uh, same type of issues coming back. Delta Airlines, awesome customer service, both in Savannah and Atlanta. Got home about the same time before all the delay issues. Be nice, people. The airline staff did not create these issues. Unfortunately, they are just the messengers. Yeah, I think there's, you know, I, I think that that's, there, there's a factor of, of that that's going on. And it's, and it's probably going to get worse because lots of pilots retiring. Things were shut down during COVID. These are skilled positions. It's just, it's kind of the reality. And like I was saying earlier, the government just threatening places just doesn't work. Now, I was thinking about the last time I got delayed and I was a little bit hacked off at the airlines. This was a couple of years ago. We were coming back from um, one of our listener trips and we were flying. Well, what, what ended up happening is we were flying from Basel, Switzerland to Frankfurt, on Lufthansa, and then Lufthansa, it was uh, Frankfurt to to Chicago. So what happens is, in Basel, Switzerland, we're, we're there. The whole group is there. We're ready to hop on the planes, and the all of a sudden, nothing is coming in or out. The airline is on a what they call a ground hold because in Europe, if somebody doesn't pick up a bag on like the carousel after a given period of time. They assume it's got a bomb in it, and they shut down the whole airport till they can get like the bomb squad out. It was so everybody's sitting there, so nothing's coming in or out for a couple hours until it turns out it's some moron who forgot to get their bag. But ev- everything's delayed. So by the time we get into Frankfurt, there, um, yeah, Frankfurt. By the time we get into Frankfurt, there, there's almost no chance to make the connection. So um, myself and our representative for Fox World Travel, the two of us leave the rest of the group, and we sprint. Now, if you've ever been to the Frankfurt airport, 
they do not fool around when it comes to security. There's armed guard. I mean, there's people with like the the machine guns and the dogs and things like that. And I'm running and she's running because we're trying to get to the gate to say we've got 50, 40, 50 people, however many had hold the plane so we can get there. And I remember going through passport control and I just kind of said trying to catch this and I kind of waved that and I I was fully expected them to to sick one of the dogs on me, but they didn't. They let me go through. So I'm I'm running. It's not a pretty sight and you know the Fox World Travel rep is running with us and we we get to the gate right as they are closing the door and I'm going I've got there's a group there's like 40 people they're right behind me let us get on the plane and and they wouldn't they they close the door so now you've got this group we are stranded in um Frankfurt Germany and the the airline had to to put us up overnight at this this kind of like we don't have our luggage because our luggage are all, is already in the system so all you have is the clothes on your back and whatever you might have with you in your travel bags they had to put us up in this hotel and rebook us all the, the next day so but I, I will say and, and one of my, the people who was on the trip was listening and just reminded me of that every, everybody was in good spirits uh, every you know once we just realized that it's beyond our control there's nothing you can do the flight has left it's just there's nothing you can do, so you might as well just kind of relax. Say, okay, we're going to spend the night in Frankfurt, Germany, and we'll we'll make the best of it, and we'll get a story that we can all tell. So it, it, there is this reality. It's sometimes you, you just have to kind of lay back and, and just kind of let it go. Uh, I want to give you an update on something that we have talked about a couple times, and it's it, it to me is, is not a surprise, but I understand that some people are, are worked up about it. There has been a controversy, particularly in the area of women's sports, with transgender athletes. And and it really came to a head last year and this year when it came to swimming. Because there was a, a person who was biologically born as a male who was a swimmer at at Penn, University of Pennsylvania, was a competitive swimmer, and was a good male swimmer. But but not not necessarily world class, but I mean had a scholarship as swimmers Pennsylvania. The individual transitioned after at the time his junior year, you know, transitioned to, to female, took a year off, you know, came back as a as a female, and then started competing and was dominant in in the sport. And there were a lot of female athletes who felt that this was fundamentally unfair because even though the person had transitioned, they were still, they were born with the male body type. They had bigger lungs, they had you know, bigger shoulders. It just physically, this was, it was, again, I understand the transition and, and things like that, but, but physically, you had a lot of the male attributes. Now, you can adjust the testosterone and stuff like that, but it didn't change the fact that you had bigger arms and a bigger body structure and broader shoulders and bigger muscles and things like that. So there's this huge controversy, and there were a lot of people who were saying, look, you, you shouldn't allow the athlete who was biologically born as a male to compete against females, that that's fundamentally unfair to the um female athletes who were born as females and then there's some people and i was watching a report on this this morning where somebody's saying oh this is just this demonstrates how transphobic people are and and i'd always argue no it's not transphobic it's just a matter of, of fundamental fairness you don't i i could care less you know if somebody is born as a male and identifies as a female and want to make the transition i, I that's that's 
that's nobody's business as far as I'm concerned. But it is a concern if you have somebody, for example, who's born as a male who has that body structure, then goes and, and wants to compete and is competing against you know you or your daughter or your granddaughter or, or whatever, because in many cases they have an unfair advantage just because of their body shape, size, etc. And that's not to diminish female athletes, but l- let's face it, you look at you look at the let's let's take the NBA and the WNBA, taking nothing away from how good WNBA players are, the women's basketball league. You know, you you put the WNBA player up against the the same category of NBA player, the male is going to dominate. It's just because they're bigger, they're they're stronger at that elite level. And I don't think that's too controversial to say. Well, in any event, um, what's happened is over the weekend, the global governing body for swimming came out with rulings which have essentially barred almost all transgender women from competing in the women's category in international events. What they've said is that swimmers who have gone through male puberty, so what's that, about the age of 12, once you've gone through male puberty, you're not going to be allowed to participate in women's events, regardless of what you might do later to suppress testosterone. Um, so it effectively, if you haven't transitioned, if, if 12 or older and you decide to transition, you're, you're not going to be allowed to compete. Now, nobody's saying that you can't make the transition, but they're just simply saying we've got to level the playing field and we, we have to be fair about this. So this is going to affect the Olympics. And my guess is this is going to be the model for other stuff moving forward. Like I said, I was, I was watching some report on this this morning and there was some, there, there was an athlete who just thought this was, this was terrible and it was transphobic, etc. And I was thinking, it's, it's really, I mean, I don't think it is. I think it is just a, a, a recognition of the fact that um, biology, you know, rules and, and Boys are different than girls, and men are different than women, and there's different body types, and it's almost impossible to argue that somebody who is born with the male lungs and the male muscle structure, etc., testosterone or not, that they are, you know, when you're comparing apples to apples, they're going to have an advantage over a similarly situated female. That's just I mean, it's inevitable. And what happened with this swimmer from Pennsylvania pretty much demonstrated that, where you have a good but not world-class male swimmer suddenly starts competing against the females, and, you know, she is winning, you know, everything. I think this is the right thing to do. I think it's the fair thing to do. I don't think it's transphobic. I think it's just, I mean, maybe if this becomes a common enough occurrence, maybe what needs to happen is you have a special category for the transgender athletes to compete against each other. you got the males, you got the females, then you got the transgender athletes. I, that, to me, would be the fairest thing. Now, I don't know how many transgender athletes you're going to have, but to have the biolo- the person who is biologically born a male competing against the females after they've passed through puberty just doesn't seem to me fair. And I think what this National Swimming Organization did was exactly the right thing. Hey, something happened, something else happened from the world of sports I just wanted to call attention to. Um, over the weekend, you might have seen it on Saturday, the Milwaukee Brewers released center fielder Lorenzo Cain. Um, he was in the final year of a five-year contract, and 
if you watched him play this year, it was pretty clear that he, he, he was at the end of his career. He was 36 years old. He was talking about retiring at the end of the season. And it was he, he was hitting like 180, and really it, it kind of lost all the pop in his bat. And, I, I mean, I've been to several games this year. I go to 20 or 25 games, and it, and it looked to me like – He'd, he'd lost a few steps. There, there were balls that he didn't get to when he was playing that I, I think he would have gotten to a couple years ago. And it, it's it's just what happens. Like we were talking about earlier, you know, father time marches on for all of us. But um, so the Brewers, I think, came to the conclusion that a lot of people had that it was just he, he wasn't contributing to the team. But the way they did it was so incredibly classy. On Saturday, they released him. Saturday was the day that he hit 10 years in the major leagues. And once you hit 10 years, you're, you're, vest, you're fully vested in all the pension programs and things like that. And it's, and it's really a big deal because of all the different benefits that, that you get. Um, if, if they would have cut him a week ago or two weeks ago or three weeks ago, when I'm sure there was some pressure to, to do that, he wouldn't have vested. They kept him on the team, even though he really wasn't contributing that much this year. They kept him on the team till he hit his 10 years and then let him go. Um, and I think that was, it was a classy, Lorenzo Cain has always been an extremely classy guy. We interviewed him on our opening day show this year. Uh, he's a very classy guy. I think he was released in a very classy way by a very classy Brewers organization. It was the it was the right thing to do for the team, but they did it in in the right way. And so many times you hear about these stories about players get released or somebody gets fired or let go by a company right before something was going to vest or right before this was going to kick in. The Brewers the Brewers played it out. They let him get his 10 years in, which, again, makes a big deal for him as a way of saying, okay, we appreciate your service and all you've done for the team. This was, in so many ways, it was the right move done in absolutely the right way. And I think the the Brewers deserve a lot of credit for the way they handled it. Looking forward to going to the game tonight and watching the Brewers and the St. Louis Cardinals. And if you can't go to the game this evening and get the $5.64 beers, well, you can hear the game here on WTMJ.